Happy Father's Day. It is my privilege to speak to you this morning and reflect on the biblical teaching what is fatherhood. If you look to Ephesians chapter 4 or chapter 6, we're going to look at only one verse today. Incredibly impactful verse on us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. As you go there, I'll give you just a brief introduction. You know book of Ephesians. Some of you know it really well. Um, if you've been studying book of Ephesians, you know that it splits into parts. One part, chapter 1 to 3, that tells us about an amazing redemptive history, the graces and the mercies of God, the richness of Christ that we have in him, that he saved us by his mercies. In chapter 2, we find ourselves dead in trespasses and then alive in Christ by his grace and mercies. And it leads us and unites us into a body of Christians that become children of God. Now, Ephesians chapter 4 starts a new section where it addresses us as a new type of people. And it lays upon us new types of responsibility. And therefore, we say that chapter 4 to 6, it's more of a practical application of the doctrines of grace, of an amazing blessings of God. Now, in chapter 4, verse 1, we see that, therefore, Paul says, I, the prisoners of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your what? Calling. Now, you've been called Christian. And so, therefore, since you've been shown mercies of God, grace, of amazing grace of God, then I would ask you to walk like those who have the name of God, that you would have the spiritual characteristics of the children of God. Of God. In chapter 5, he continues, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in the Lord, and love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up. He calls us to walk and be imitators of Christ, to be spiritual people, new type of people. And if you flip to chapter 5, verse 18, you'll see that the key verse basically to the rest of the chapters is verse 18 and chapter 5, and do not get drunk with wine, but what is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, Paul is saying if you're a Christian, if you've been called the child of God, if you're walking in according to your calling, you are supposed to be Spirit-filled Christian. And the rest of the chapters, he expounds what does it mean to be Spirit-filled Christian. Spirit-filled Christian. And we know that later on in verse 22 of chapter 5, he says, he addresses wife and he says, the spirit-filled wife, spirit-filled wife, is seeking to reflect spirit-filled Christ by being obedient to the authority in her life. In other words, the spirit-filled wife is the one who follows spirit-filled Christ who was obedient to the Father. Spirit-filled husband 
is the one who obedient to Christ and gave himself up for his church. That is what means to be spirit-filled husband. And in chapter 6, we come to the section when he addresses children and saying spirit-filled children reflecting spirit-filled Christ who was obedient to his father and everything. And he said, you must be obedient to your father and mother and keep them in honor. And then in verse 4, he addresses fathers. What is mean? What, what does it mean to be spirit-filled father? And here is the task for us today. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in a discipline and instruction of the Lord. Would you bow with me and pray, Father, we thank you. We want to submit to your word, and we want to learn about biblical fatherhood, that you would teach us what does it mean to be a godly, a good, kind, compassionate father that we could raise our children up for you. Bless us, Lord. Bless the study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Years ago, Duke of Windsor, if you know who that was, he was uh, a king of England just for, for a few, probably a year or so. He abdicated his throne of England because he wanted to marry American woman, a divorcee, and moved to the United States. So they gave him a new title, Duke of Windsor. When he moved to America, he observed one thing. He said, everything in America, an American home, is controlled by switches, except children. When we come to the fatherhood, we could control a lot of things, but we understand our limitations, and we need our guidance from the Word of God to see what does it mean to be a godly father. And I'll give you from this text, from this verse, one verse, that a biblical fatherhood could be defined by three R's. Number one, God expects fathers to accept responsibility. Responsibility. Fatherhood breathes responsibility. Number two, a biblical father, a godly father, leads with respect. And then bring his children, number three, in light of redemption of the Lord. The responsibility, the respect, and redemption. Now, how do we do so? Where do we see that? Number one, when God is calling us fathers, with this word, he gives us humongous responsibility. Now, many of you are fathers and know what I'm talking about. About 24 and a half years ago, I became father. And I remember standing in the room with child in my hands, the firstborn. And a Dr. Watson, I would never forget his name, Dr. Watson, he said he is, he's helping uh, in the delivery. And he said, well, why are you not dancing? Are Ukrainians or not, not dancing when you have a first child? And I would say nothing. I was stunned because I hold this child and the immense responsibility fall on my shoulders. I do not know what to do with him. I don't, I'm not thinking about dancing. I'm thinking about crying. I do not know what to feel. I do not know this guy. I do not know what to do with him. The huge responsibility fell on my shoulder, and now I'm responsible for this little dude. When you become a father, 
You become responsible right away. Won't you or do you want it or not? Spirit-filled fathers assume God-given responsibility to raise his children. It is a man's accountability. God holds fathers accountable for parenting because he has given them a massive amount of influence on the children. And we have to recognize that you have this responsibility. Just the word father breathe responsibility. Now, if you look at our society, we'll see the shift. Every pagan religion elevates mom. Bible elevates father. You see in the Bible, father, who is compassionate to his children, God. You see that Jesus is calling him father. You see when we pray, we address fathers. Puritans used to say father is a mirror in which children look to put on their spiritual dresses. The problem in our society is increasing matriarchalism. Women are raising children, not men. This is not true only, not only true in the world, it is true in the church. Moms, single moms, married moms, married moms have took upon themselves the task of educating children and took a primary role in raising children. Do you know that mothers purchase 80% of the material on parenting? All the publishers, they're aiming at moms these days. Moms read them and give them to their husbands, and their husbands rarely pick the chapter from the book thinking that they know how to raise. The problem in our leadership, when mom takes the leadership, the woman takes the lead, men withdrew, withdrew from that type of leadership. Children don't want to follow. When men assume role, it is, in, it is inflaming. Men, boys, girls want to follow their parents. Before 1800s, parental manuals were written to fa for fathers. Fathers were viewed as a primary responsible for raising their children. Fathers were the one who took initiative in raising children. And mothers were always have an assistant role, always. Now, when we go to the Bible and we call ourselves father, we need to accept this model, biblical model of fatherhood. That you are man as a chief parent in a home. You're not only in your hierarchy, the main in the house, you're the chief parent in the home. Do you know that when God addresses parenting in New Testament, there are only two verses in the New Testament of how to raise your children? Two. Two clear-cut verses. That's all. The rest of the material is in Old Testament. But New Testament addresses. This is one of them. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. It's one of them. And also in Colossians chapter 3, 21, addressing both of them. Addressing to the fathers, fathers, an amazing factor. God addresses you and holds you responsible to raise your children. If you know your Bible, the Bible is full of story of fathers and their children. Noah and his three sons. Do you know wife name of Noah? You don't. Abraham and his son Isaac, Isaac and his son Jacob, the whole Old Testament history about God, the Father, and his children, Israel's. Old Testament places a main responsibility 
of child rearing on fathers. In Deuteronomy 5.16, reflecting this passage, says, Honor your father and mother as the Lord God commands you, that your days may be long and that it may be dwell, you may dwell in your land. Notice that this instruction, although involving both parents, is always in the context of father overarching authority. Mothers have critical role of child rearing, but always as helpers. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1 says, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 15, 20 reflects the same thing. The rod and reproof get wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. The idea of these passages is not to downgrade mother's authority, but to place her as an assistant to dad to carry out his instructions. The burden of the authority in home and rearing children on dad. Old Testament is all about fathers and their children. Check the Bible starting with Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. Adam became father of son. In his own liking, likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Seth lived 105 years and became father of Enosh. Enosh lived 90 years and became father of Canaan, and so on. Understand that the father been given a greater responsibility. And God designed it this way so that children would follow. And we as fathers have amazing influence on our children, an amazing influence. Now, maybe many of you might read the statistics. In June 2003, published by Touchstone Magazine, there was done uh, some research by uh, in Swiss study that show enormous influence of the father on their children. When both father and mother attend the church regularly, 33% of their children become regular attendants of the church when they grow up. But when fathers were not interested to go to church, only 2% of their children become regular churchgoers. What amazing is that dad, that when dad only were going to the church and moms were not interested the percentage of kids that end up going to church rose up to 44%. The study concluded, if a father does not go to the church, no matter how faithful his five devotions, only one child out of 50 will become regular adult worshipers. Now, God is in control of all things, and he's sovereign. He could do all things in whatever he wants and turn around to children and help single moms for sure. But the pattern that we see in the Bible is that responsibility and the influence that goes with this is on fathers. So therefore, we need to understand when we fail as fathers, the society fails, the family fails, the church fails. The Bible records the sad results of fathers neglecting their children. David, David pumpered Absalom and set him a bad example for him. And the results were tragic. Eli, not his wife, was responsible for failure to teach godliness to Hophni and Phinehas. Do you know that Samuel failed as a father, even though he was a great prophet? David, not Bathsheba, was responsible for his son's failure. So, we want to be spirit-filled fathers. What does that mean? It means, number one, 
you take responsibility seriously. God expects fathers to expect to accept responsibility. Number two, if you go back to your text, it says fathers. This is what we've been dealing with. Fathers, bearing responsibility. Do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers must lead not only responsibly, but also must lead their children and their family with respect. Fathers must promote respect in the family. Another word for respect would be glory or honor or love. When someone is doing something worthy, you praise and respect. Jesus gave this rule. This is not a new thing for fathers. This is the basic of Christianity. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, we see Jesus is saying, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the way how we treat people with honor and respect. This is not new. It's not only basic of fatherhood. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul is reflecting on the same idea, saying, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. 1 Peter 2, 17. He concludes that honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. These are not texts. Paul is stressing this thought, respect your kids. Bring the respect in the family. You know, if you have the responsibility and authority, it doesn't mean that you could treat everybody like trash. Dad should respect mom. Peter challenges husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way and show her honor as fellow heir of grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Proverbs 31 teaches us in verse Chapter 31, verse 28, her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Fathers, bring respect to the family by respecting mom. Mom should respect dad. Ephesians 35, 33 says, the wife must also see that she respects her husband. Why does the Bible constantly teach us to respect one another? Perhaps because we don't. Because the only one that we always respect is ourselves. We don't need to teach ourselves to respect self. But we need to be taught how to honor others. And it's a vital in a family. The children should respect their parents. In Ephesians 6, 1 clearly says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Bring the respect. Dads should respect their children as well. You know, sometimes it robs us our wrong way. No, children must obey. And they give us honor and respect, but we don't. But the Bible teaches that there are people. They have soul. They have eternity ahead of them. They are important. James Dobson, I don't like quoting from him a lot, but he, he, he nailed it. He said, respect is unsuccessful as unilateral affair. If it's only one way, it's, it's never, never success. It must operate on a two-way street. A mother cannot require her child to treat her with dignity if she will not do the same for him. She should be gentle with him as a person, never belittling or embarrassing him in front of his friend, 
punishment should usually be administered away from the eyes of gloating onlookers. The child should not be laughed at unmercifully. His strong feelings and requests, even if foolish, should be given an honest appraisal. He should feel that his parents really do care about me. A father who desires respect should respect and show respects to others himself. And finally, fathers should teach our children to respect the Lord. Everything must be done in the Lord, in the instruction of the Lord. Now, Bible, and specifically this passage, clearly teaches what disrespect look like. So, okay, great. We're going to honor and respect our kids. But what does this disrespect look? And Paul is saying, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's disrespectful, this dishonoring, this is disheartening. There's a restriction, the prohibition against the disrespect. Do not provoke your children to anger, which is opposite of kindness. God's kindness, not the law, leads people to repentance. God the Father wants us to follow his way by dealing with us, with rebellion children, by showing us mercy and kindness. Now, living Bible paraphrase this phrase this way. Don't keep scolding and nagging your children, making them angry and resentful. Now, you don't want to make children resentful that they don't follow you. You want to lead them to where you want to be. And you want to be with Christ forever in heaven. You want, to be, want them to be there. And you don't want to send them away from you and, and make them resentful that they don't listen to anything you say. The word do not provoke is negative command to the father. It means to be not irritating or provoking them to anger and frustration. Something that we do or say builds up and over time the anger and hopelessness. Now I'll give, give you a couple of illustrations. What does it mean to provoke? Now we all probably know really well how to provoke people, you know. Uh, we know their buttons. But how do we provoke our children to anger? I'll give you a few. Number one, you provoke your children when you're neglecting them. I think the biggest problem in our families is neglect. It's when we think that five-minute Bible study will do it all. And the rest of it, we are busy. It's when you check out mentally and physically from your home and you are doing things Glorious things. You're making money. You're making ministries to people. But you check out from your home from your children. Father's aloofness brings children to anger. We feel like training children is mom's job. What provokes children is when you disappear for a week and then appear and he said, well, this is what you do with the to-do list. Mow the lawn, wash the dishes, and so on. That would provoke them because you weren't there. You do not know what they feel, what they went through. Not everyone who would like to of the children to accept that. The Lord says to Moses that you have to treat me as the one who give ability to the children. And you need to learn about them. Who has what kind of abilities to do Every child is unique, and you need to address them as different. For that, you need some time, spending time with them. 
Number two, improper discipline. Verbal abuse is often present in our home. Isn't it? Moms yelling at their children. Dads giving children cold shoulder or really anger look. But James 1.20 should be really clear for us. For the wrath of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Verbal abuse and physical cruelty should never be part of our home. Instead, we should be blessing our children and our daughters. Imagine how much you bless your children, really. In Judaism, in the sections of Judaism, there is a practice that the Sabbath dinner, father gets up and goes to at the back of the child and put his hands on the hat of a child and blesses him and announces the blessings of the Lord of what was good in his life and what he wishes for him to become. If you look upon your dealing with your children, what is more? Yelling, correcting, changing their behaviors or so on, or coming and say, hey, this is what the Lord has in store for you. I want you to be blessed. Commentator Barclay tells us about testimony of distinguished painter Benjamin West in this respect, how he, his mom helped him to become a famous painter. When Benjamin West was young, one day when his mother went out, leaving him in charge of his sister, Benjamin took a bottle of colored ink and decided to paint his sister's portrait. Now imagine what happened. He made a mess with ink. When his mother came back, she said nothing about the messy ink stains. Instead, she picked up the piece of paper on which Benjamin drew and exclaimed, Why? It's Sally. Then she stooped and kissed him. Benjamin West used to say, My mother's kiss made me a painter. You know, sometimes we react and overreact, but you don't, you're not there, and you provoke them to anger. And then you appear with a do-do list, and you provoke them to anger. And instead of the looking for the best and blessing them, you're nagging on them. Martin Luther said, spare the rod and spoil the child. That is true. But besides the rod, keep an apple to give him when he has done well. Another reason, when we improperly discipline, but also unreasonable, unreasonable expectations drive our kids crazy. Parents, those who are never happy with achievement of their children. You bring a B, you're a bad boy, right? You need an A. You bring A, you need A+. Always a perfectionism. Reminds me uh, Gru's mom from Despicable me. Remember, anything he does, she said, nah, that's not good enough. Nah. He made a rocket out of the macaroni box, and she said, nah. Well, when we do that, we become a hypocrite. We become a hypocrite because you live not by perfectionism, not by the law, but by the grace. And you want to pass it on on your children, the law and perfectionism, and they would never satisfy you. I remember our first Sunday school meeting 15 years ago in the church. And we had a minister at that time. I won't tell his name. But he was saying to us 
to the Sunday school teachers, he said, well, you must be praying two hours a day, every day. And I was kind of stunned. And after the meeting, I asked him, sir, do you pray two hours a day? And he said, well, not every time. I said, why are you bringing this law upon us that will crush us and will feel us that we are underperforming? Why are you doing this? You're a hypocrite. Do you want to make your children angry? Act hypocritically. Impose on them something that you don't even do. Create some rules that you don't even remember. Never praise them. Never thumbs up. Never tell them that they're good enough. Tell them that they go to hell, and that's all they deserve, and they, you, will, you will make children that they don't want to go to heaven. Another one that would make children provoke is favoritism, misguided love. We know that in the Bible, Isaac favored Esau over Jacob, and Rebekah preferred Jacob over Esau, and it created a long life strife that exists even today. This unhealthy favoritism produces hatred among brothers and continues among their descendants. Jacob have a favorite child, Joseph. Remember how it did turn out. It wasn't nothing even good. Gave him a collared robe to make him like a peacock in the family. Brothers hated him. If you do that, you would provoke children to anger. And the result is that they would disrespect you. They're not going to honor you. In Colossians 3.21, the similar passage, the another passage that addressing the parenting, it says, do not exasperate your children so that they may not lose heart. This word exasperate is different from the word provoke. It means, that make, res it means make resentful, but the same idea. Children does not, will, will not follow you. They will be insensitive and disrespectful when you constantly drive them crazy, nagging, making unhealthy favoritism and stand aloof from them. So there are two things, at least so far we see. Fathers bears responsibility. A spirit-filled father takes on responsibility to be one. He's like the father, God the father. A spiritual father leads with respect, promote respect in the family, and even respects the children. And number three, a spiritual father who brings up children in light of redemption. The positive instruction here, he says, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up, not bring them down getting them up where you want to be. It means that our goal is to bring them up to salvation where they could worship Christ for eternity. How do we do that? How do we raise them in light of redemption? It's by giving them redemptive word, number one. I want to mention three things from this phrase. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord means at least three things. Raising children in light of redemption, meaning that you need have patience with them. The first word here, bring them up, meaning that nurturing them, feeding them to maturity. It's the same word as mom nurtures her child. In Ephesians 5.29, you're here, look at the verse, 5.29. For 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. The word nourishes it. You're nourishing your own flesh, meaning the same thing as bringing up children and in instruction. It means that you are treating yourself like a little baby. When you wake up, you give it your body food. You, you make yourself washed and, and smell well. You take time. That's the same thing. You have patience with yourself. And God said when you bring children up, you have to have type of nourishment idea as you raising them up. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it says, come alive. Uh, this, this word, come alive, be patient with all men. You can add, be patient with your children. The nourishment can be done without patience. You have to do it slowly, carefully, meticulously. The Lord takes time to train his children. We should take time to train our children. Sometimes dad wants to quick results, right? We want things fixed, character changed right away. Right, we're all about actions. We see a problem behavior of a child. You take a wooden spoon and the problem is solved, right? We tend to fix problem quickly, snap decisions, jump on discipline in a situation without getting on all the facts. Sometimes for dad, it's a good thing to listen to mom what was happening in the home. Because mother are natural nurturers. We would be wise to listen to our wife's concerns ideas in constructive criticism. Take example from your heavenly father. How is he dealing with you? When he disciplines you, is he bringing up right away the discipline? Sometimes he takes a time, takes a time to discipline you. And he shows a lot of love and compassion. And when we think about your heavenly father, you think about him as the one who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness. Psalm 103.8 repeats the same thing. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abound in love and kindness. The whole Israel's history is a story of patient God with his children. Raising children, bring them up, meaning nurturing him, them, that means patience. Number two, Raising children in light of redemption, meaning that you need to spend time. The word in the discipline of the Lord, in the discipline here in our text, bring them up in the discipline. It equals to the word training. It's the same word for training. And you cannot pass training really quickly. You cannot lose 20 pounds over a night. You need some time in training yourself, training the habit. The word discipline is from word child, paideia, referring to systematic training, forming them, molding them into the image. And by the way, it's not your image that you're molding them. It's not your ideas, your preferences, your things that you want to accomplish for the child. It is the image of the Lord, image of Jesus. Train the child in the way he should go. And this is not your way, it's the Lord's way. We must remember, we don't raise children for ourselves. We raise them for the Lord, and therefore, it's his image we want to see and reflect, and that takes time. That takes time. The term dis, uh, disciplining 
automatically creates in us spanking or some kind of restriction, but not necessarily. It has that component, admonishing them, changing her or his mind about life, about self, about sister, about brother, about Christ, about church, and about everything, about the values in life, and about eternity. Here's where your personal knowledge of the Word is so important that you would know whose image you want to build them up to. And it takes time. It takes about 20 years. You know, when we think about training, we confuse it with word teaching. For us, training and teaching is about the same thing. But let me give you an illustration that is different. When we're teaching, we engage in the mind. When we're training, we're training the character. And you cannot train a character in the classroom. It's impossible. If you want to train a child not to slam the door of your car, that irritates you really much. Every time he comes out from your new car and just like slams it, especially when something is not his way or her way. You don't sit him in your office for 20 minutes or an hour and say, well, son, next time you get angry, please don't slam the door. I guarantee you, it's just a matter of time when he's repeat, he repeats this again. There's a place for that. But the way how you train a character, it's when he does that, you tell him, all right, seems like being angry right now. So we're going to go to the heart issue. You need to be controlling of your heart. And so I want you to go back into the car and get out and slowly and gently and patiently close the door, thinking that I love you. And then I want you to do it 21 times. That would train a character. If you will repeat 21 times, just what I said would not help. But if you train him to do the same, he will think twice. That's training character. That is training. Raising children requires time and patience. You're training a child. You're not going to do it over time, overnight. It takes about 20 years. And the last thing we see here that it also involves knowledge. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up, nurture them. Nurture them by training them, taking time and patiently do that, and instruction of the Lord. And he comes to the Word of God. The redemptive fatherhood is using the redemptive Word of God to change the character. Instruction of the Lord. We must instruct them with the Word of God. We must feed them. Literally meaning instruction put in, in their minds. Put in, in their minds. Our children's minds are like a spiritual gardens. William Carnell, a Puritan preacher of 16th centuries, 1600s, said it well. This is the difference between religion and atheism. Religion does not grow without planting. Does, grow, does not grow without planting, but will die even when it's planted without watering. Atheism, irreligion, and profanities are weed that will grow without setting, but they will not die even without watering. 
It takes effort to train and to change behaviors. It takes effort to teach and to train. Our children, like in empty buckets, they are waiting to be filled with the Word of God. And if you don't do that, if you don't give them the bread of life, they will not learn. There's a saying, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. So if you eat organic, good stuff, you become more organic and supposedly. I know for sure if I eat a lot of potato, I look like one. That's true. But it's true for sure about the spiritual quality of your food. It requires the knowledge what you're teaching them. You have to teach them the word of God. Jesus says, I am the bread of life in John 6, 37. And if all you're teaching them how to be moral and good behavior or teaching them how to be a good citizen, you're missing on the bread of life. If you want them to look like Jesus, we must feed them Jesus and offer them a spiritual food. That requires your own study. You cannot teach them and instruct them in the Lord if you do not know the instruction. How long do you instruct them during the day? Don't do this, do this, addressing their heart issues in comparison of how long you are actually studying what the Word of God says. We kind of assume that we know, but we don't spend enough time to study. So therefore, when we teach, our teaching is weak. We must know it requires knowledge, the instruction of the Lord. It requires them feeding them, putting in their minds what is of God and not what of ours. On the flip side of that, father who does not provide for his children physically, and we pay a lot of attention about physical provision, Bible calls them as worse than unbeliever. It calls them lazy father. What do you think Jesus thinks about us when we don't provide a f- spiritual food? Do you think that we are all right? Do you think Jesus thinks, fine, as long as you put meat and potato on the table, you're fine, and forget about spiritual nourishment of your children, you're a good guy. No, you're a failure. Failure to feed your children with the bread of life is far more serious failure than providing them with material goods. Biblical expectation is for fathers to become an educator of their children, not moms. They're chief parents in the family. They have responsibility. They have to spend time and patiently train them. We're like farmers of our children. We're teaching them slowly and not aloofly. And a point that we must study the Word of God ourselves, in Deuteronomy 6, the very famous passage about what we should do with our children, it says, these words I command you today shall be on your heart. And then, and only then, after you write them on your own heart, Father, you shall teach them diligently to your children. It takes time to soak into your own heart, into your own Bible, to understand what the image you want to portray in, their, in your children, and then bring them on. It is the most importantly, but most importantly, about all things, how to redemptively lead them to Christ and instruction of the Lord, teach them what does it mean to live in light of Christ's redemption. The words that God wants us to put on our own hearts, 
It's not just the word of the law. It's a word of grace. The word that God wants us to put on our own hearts and tie it up on our heads and our foreheads and our, our right arm is the same word that we want to see in our children. The word that God is gracious and compassionate, that he sent his own son to die for our sins, and that his blood redeems us for a new life, a spirit-filled life, life full of grace, full of mercy, full of obedience to the Lord, and therefore full of joy. Tell them that they own everything to the Lord, that they are, he is the only one who redeemed them, and he could change them in all their failures, in all their problems, in all their sins are taken away on the cross. And now instead, he gives us the Spirit of God, making us Spirit-filled parents. I guess this is what spiritual fatherhood means, responsibility, respect, and redemption. I think this is what you want to do with your children, take responsibilities on their failure, lead them in kindness, and also bring them to the cross. I'll read you and finish with an article by Emma, Irma Bombeck. She was a columnist and humorist that wrote this about her children. And this is a reminder that fatherhood is temporary. You're not going to be father all your lives with the same responsibility. You have a limited amount of time with your children and must use it rightly. Same goes for moms. You won't be same running around around your children to teach them and train them. It only goes for so long. She writes this. One of these days, you'll shout, why don't you kids grow up and act your age? And they will. Or, you guys get outside and find yourself something to do and don't slam the door. And they will. You're straighten up the boys' bedroom, neat and tidy, bumper stickers discarded, bed spread tucked and smooth, toys displayed on the shelves, hangers in the closets, animal cage, and you'll say, now I want it to stay this way, and it will. I'll prepare a perfect dinner with a salad that hasn't been picked to death, and a cake with no finger traces on the icings, and you'll say, now there's a meal for company, and you'll eat it alone. No more anxious nights under a vaporizing tent, no more sand on the sheets or Popeye movies in the ba bathrooms. No more iron on patches, wet, knotted, shustering, tight boots or rubber bands for ponytails. Imagine a lipstick with a point on it. No babysitters for New Year's Eve. Washing clothes only once a week. Seeking a steak that isn't ground. Having your teeth cleaned by the dentist without a baby on your lap. No PTA meeting, no carpals, no blaring radios, no one washing her hair at 11 o'clock at night, having your own roll of transparent adhesive tape. Think about it. No more Christmas presents out of a toothpicks. No more sloppy oatmeal, oatmeal, uh, oatmeal kisses. No more tooth fairy. No more giggles in the dark. No knees to heal. No responsibility. Only a voice crying. Why don't you grow up? 
and the silence echoing. I did. Fatherhood is temporary. We got to take it seriously. Father, we thank you. May you bless us to become responsible, kind, honoring fathers that know what we want to teach. That the shock of having child would be exchange for the confidence in the Lord. That we know what we want to do with our children. We know what we want to teach them. And we know what we want them to look like. It is like your son. Help us to reflect this type of fatherhood for your glory. Amen.